The Guardian. Support for this Guardian podcast comes from Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes creating a professional website for your business, personal brand or portfolio so easy it's newsworthy. Go to squarespace.com and use the offer Guardian to get 10% off. Hello and welcome to Media Talk. I'm John Plunkett. On today's show, Global Radio sells eight stations to former independent owner Dennis O'Brien. Mark Thompson's taken to task by MPs for the BBC's Digital Media Initiative. Adam Bolton discusses his career at Sky and the Muppets at Channel 4. His words, not mine. Plus, Rebecca Nicholson talks dispatches, the bridge and the restaurant man. That's all coming up on Media Talk from The Guardian. And I'm joined today, in fact, two debutants uh, here in the studio, you'll be excited to know. Uh, first up, James Cridland, uh, owner of uh, Media UK and radio consultant, and by the creative director of independent television company Lemonade Money, Faraz Osman. Uh, welcome both. Hello. Hello. Here we go. Give us your elevator pitch uh, in 10 seconds, if you will, just to introduce yourself to our, to our listeners. Uh, Faraz, over to you first. Oh, God, I wish I could do 10 seconds. I'm suffering from the broadcast awards last night, so I'm a little bit, little bit worse for wear. Did so. you win? Uh, well, I was judging, so ah, um, everybody Did you won. judge? Television was, television was a winner. That'll however. do. That'll do. James? Uh, and I'm, uh, I'm celebrating my 25th year in the radio industry this year, which is a scary thing. You launched at the same time as Sky. Uh, I did indeed, yes. Mm-hmm. And uh, down the line, I hesitate to call him a Media Talk veteran, but uh, someone who's been with, on the show before is Mr. Paul Robinson, Chief Executive of the Radio Academy. Paul, how are you? I'm good, thank you. I'm good. I'm in uh, very wet, damp West London, but uh, it's very warm in the office. Very nice. Is it? I'm uh, steaming up as we speak. I wouldn't say steaming, no. Right, OK. All right. Well, we're going to start because you've got two radio types here. Where better to start than with uh, Global Radio and the Ray Jars? Uh, where should we go first? Let's do the listening figures first. Uh, James, uh, the uh, quarterly radio industry listening figures um, out this week, or for the last three months of uh, 2013, that's right, isn't it? Mm. I hesitate to boil it down into winners and losers, but who are the winners and losers? Give us your take (laughs) on that. Well, I think winners are speech radio. Speech radio has done tremendously well. Radio 4 showing some record new figures, 5 Live showing a healthy increase, and so on and so forth. Uh, LBC, relatively steady. Uh, And of course, they go national next week on uh, DAB. So speech radio, talk radio, as the as the Americans call it, doing really, really well, which is which is really nice. And Paul, what about you? There were some stories to be had, I think, at Radio One and Radio Two outside of the outside of speech. Yeah, well, I, mean, I think what's interesting about this, this radio is, in a way, everyone's a winner because, in fact, all radio is up. You know, 1.3 million more people have been listening to radio. Um, what is interesting is how the the share of listening has changed. The BBC has continued to uh, make uh, distance with commercial radio. So BBC now has got 55.2% of all listening uh, with commercial radio, 42.1%. But um, Radio 1 is, is interesting because uh, Nick Grimshaw, having lost audience last quarter, has now added 700,000 listeners onto his audience, which puts him at 6.29 million. And the interesting thing here is this is his fourth quarter now of doing The Breakfast Show. And at 6.29 million, he's got exactly the same reach as Chris Moyles had in his fourth quarter when he was doing the Radio 1 breakfast show. So, uh, in other words, he's doing all right after a tricky start. He's doing okay. The other measure for Radio 1, of course, is the 1524s, and and, uh, there's been slight improvement there. 41.5% of all 1524s now listen to Radio 1, so that will hopefully keep um, Ben Cooper and also the the trustees happy. The the juggernaut story is Radio 2. I mean, Radio 2 continues to build audience. A new record uh, high, 15.5 million reach. Uh, Chris Evans' breakfast show uh, is uh, powering ahead another new record for that a mere 180,000 now off 10 million so 9.82 million for the radio 2 breakfast show and here's an interesting statistic um the audiences to ken bruce 
Jeremy Vine and Steve Wright, all on Radio 2, are now greater than the audience to the Radio 1 Breakfast Show. Oh, well, thank you very much for that stat, Faraz. I won't say beat that, but are you a, are you a, are you a groomy man, Evans man, or well, something else? And Lemonade Money does a lot of work around music, and I think this is it's it's interesting because this space seems to be splitting in two, where you have broadcast kind of looking at radar figures and, and getting excited every time there's a bump. But but I think that when it comes to music listening, there's been a huge growing trend in what's happening via online from from YouTube, from things like Complex Magazine, what Accelerator's doing, what Pitchfork is doing. We've just had Beats Music enter the market from as a Spotify competitor. And I think if you're a, a listener of and lover of music, it's a little bit worrying for me when you see things like Heart, Smooth and Radio 2 all kind of coming together and looking playing the same music and doing the same thing and and I'd I'd like to see what's going on in the specialist music market when it comes to radio because it feels like from a radio perspective and a broadcasting perspective that's starting to get abandoned in in the hope that everybody gets their fix from from online. Yeah James there's been a lot of criticism from commercial radio that Radio 2 is muscling in on their patch and is getting too big for its boots and as Paul says it's got the best part of 16 million listeners but but has commercial radio got a got a valid criticism is it is it ticking those specialist boxes or is it too mainstream Well I think if 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 you have the amount of money that Radio 2 has to spend on of course you know the TV advertising it gets on the BBC and and various other things then of course you know if you're working for a commercial uh, company you'll feel a little bit a little bit hard done by there I mean I think there are there are warning signs in in these figures because the amount of time that we're spending with radio has actually gone down again and so actually yes we may have actually added year on year another 1.3 million people tuning into into the radio but actually total hours listened to the radio is down year on year so that's a bit of a worry for where the future of the media lies and i think and i think it's something that the industry should really take a little bit more seriously I'm guessing that decline in, in audience in, in listening hours is, is is more precipitous among younger listeners than it is among the older audience, which is a even more uh, tricky for you know proposition for future. Yeah, indeed, and I think also it's it's reflecting uh, the fact that music is available in so many different places now, and actually you have to give audiences more than just ten great songs in a row uh, if you're going to um, have a, a winning uh, formula for a radio station. For us. Do, you, do you see that in commercial? Do you still see it, a lot of it dominated by you know ten great songs in a row? There's not not the risk taken there could be that other stations do. I, Maybe I think, the BBC does. I, I kind of I think that Ben Cooper's strategy is the right one. I think it's going in the right direction. Um, moving Radio One to being a bigger brand and just a, a radio station is is the right thing to do. I think that they've had a lot of successes this year. When you look at what's happened with the Kanye West interview and, and all the Zane Lowe interviews they've done, and then growing their their figures on on YouTube, on Twitter, I'll be interesting to see what their reaction is to these figures. If it's something that they'll comment on, if it's something that they'll celebrate, or if it's actually they'll kind of go, okay, that's great, but actually we're we're looking at a different space to, to grow our audience and and see where our successes are. And Paul, you're the you're the big boss at the Radio Academy. Is is, is but commercial radio in particular? Are, are they in denial about this sort of decline in in, in listening hours, or are they, are they doing something about it? Or you know, how much of a live issue is it? Well, I think it is a real issue, as James said. I think it's too early to draw any big conclusions because it's one survey and we have to look at a succession of different surveys. But it's definitely true that there appears to be an issue with average listening, particularly amongst younger listeners. If you look at the, the number of hours that Radio 1 listeners listen or Capital listeners listen, it's much less than um, stations like Radio 2. I mean, interestingly, in London, um, if you look at the sort of top five um, in London, Radio 4 is top, Radio 2 is second, Capital is third, LBC is fourth, and Magic is fifth. But Capital and LBC have 
got the same share of listening, whereas LBC has roughly half the listeners of Capital. Or another way of putting that is that listeners to LBC are listening for twice as long as Capital listeners. So the challenge of getting more loyalty, particularly amongst younger audiences, is a challenge. And that's not just about the services. It's also about technology and, and how you deliver radio. I think what's also very interesting, the other milestone in this particular set of figures is that BBC Six Music has reached a new high audience of 1.96 million listeners uh, a week, so nearly 2 million, uh, which is just a, a titch of Radio 3 at 1.99. So we've got a, a digital-only network uh, in BBC Six Music now pretty much on listeners level uh, with Radio 3. So that, that's, I think, quite encouraging for uh, the digital audience and just shows how if you get it right, people will come to you. That headline, Six Music Overtakes Radio 3, is inked in uh, for the next uh, uh, Radio Paul. Uh, no doubt it about that. happen next time, I'm pretty certain. They already uh, have in terms of total listening hours. They just haven't quite got there um, in terms of, of reach. And sticking with radio, uh, in fact, it was announced on the same day the radios came out that uh, Global Radio has uh, sold off eight radio stations to a chap you will remember called uh, Dennis O'Brien, who used to own the uh, Independent, of course. Uh, he runs a company called uh, Communicorp, which owns uh, 19 radio stations across four countries, um, it says here, including Ireland. Um, I think the deal was worth about £35 million, and Global was forced to sell off the stations after it spent £70 million on uh, GMG Radio, of which these stations um, were a part. James, those two figures, 35 and 70, makes it sound like a, a bad deal for Global, in fact, but it's, it's, it's rather better than that. I, th- I think it's a fantastic deal for them. I think they've got everything they wanted out of this uh, deal. Global will still sell national advertising for these uh, radio stations. They've actually sold the national advertising for these stations for a long time now, but they've now got an enhanced heart and capital brand, so it'll reach far more people that way. And what Global have done now is they don't have to go to the expense of making local programming, which is expensive, sorting out local sales which is also expensive. Um, that's up to Communicore. And if all of that wasn't enough, they've actually got their man as the number one guy for the UK Communicore company, Mark Lee. So I, th- I think it's great news for, uh, for a global. It's a very canny move, and it's one that not very many people w- were actually expecting. And Paul, these, these stations, as, uh, as James has uh, intimated there, they're not going to become O'Brien FM. They're all going to stay either Hart or Capital and kind of continue. As far as the listener's concerned, they're still going to be Hart or Capital, and you know, no, no change. Well, what will happen is Real Radio will disappear. So Real Radio Northwest and Real Radio Yorkshire will become Heart. So that's a change. The capital stations will stay as capital. The other change, of course, is with Smooth. Smooth East Midlands, Smooth Northwest and Smooth Northeast are all uh, being acquired by this company. And Smooth is now coming off uh, Digital One. So what will happen to these local stations is they will start putting local content in. So that will be a change. Smooth will start to become a more of a local brand than a, a national brand as it currently is. Um, but I think it's a very smart move. I mean, obviously, my my view here is that this should never have happened. And the Competition Commission got it hopelessly wrong uh, in not allowing Global to acquire Real Smooth. But actually, uh, they've come out of this very well. Global have played it very well. And they've got, uh, as James says, pretty much all they want. So it's a a good result for Global. It's actually a pretty good result for listeners, too. Uh, And James, I think you were were, uh, agreeing there, I think. What's the Competition Commission, what's it achieved by doing this? I I don't think they've... They've achieved anything, really. I mean, it was a very odd. Uh, it was a very odd ruling, anyway. It didn't really understand that advertisers have lots of places to spend money now, which um, uh, you know, radio is one of those places. So the whole the whole idea seemed very, very rooted in the in the eighties to me. And Global actually completely understand how brand licensing works because they're already doing it. The Hart radio station in Watford, uh, Hart ninety six point six, is owned by a different company, Adventure Radio, and they license the Hart brand. 
from uh, Global. Global also licensed the Classic FM format uh, out to places like Australia and South Africa. So Global completely understand what they're doing here. And I think, you know, it's almost as if they've sidestepped what the Competition Commission really wanted them to end up doing. It'll be interesting to see if the Competition Commission take any lessons from this as we kind of move towards all three media and Fremantle merging in the TV space as well. I mean, that seems like it's going to be a big story in the next few months and whether that's going to be referred to the to the Competition Commission and, and they'll kind of look at what's happened at Global and, and use that as a, as a benchmark to, to judge what's happening in the TV space as well. I think that this is going to be the age of the hyper-indie, as it were, and, and it'd be interesting to see if that continues. Okay, thanks for that. Uh, And Paul, stick with us if you would. Not strictly a radio story, well, not a radio story at all, but we're going to talk about DMI now. Uh, And last time we talked about uh, the Digital Media Initiative, I'm pretty sure I said this is the last time we're going to talk about the Digital Media Initiative, but uh, I can guarantee this is uh, probably not the last time we talk about the Digital Media Initiative. But uh, uh, Paul, you're still there? I'm still here, yeah. yeah I, thought, I thought my intro might have, might have, might have killed you off. No, no, no. I'm, I'm, I'm hanging <laughs> on every word, John. Certainly, well, everyone in the studio's left. I'll tell you that. Uh, no. <laughs> you will not need reminding that Mark Thompson was back up before uh, MPs this week, along with a handful of uh, corporation faces, past and present, to talk about this disastrous IT project, which cost licence fee payers £98.4 million. Pounds. It was a slight change of scene, and that the, uh, the lineup also included John Linwood, uh, the former technology chief who uh, paid for the uh, paid for the fast with his job last summer. It belatedly turned out, although he's uh, now taking legal action against the BBC about that. So probably not the last we've heard from him. But uh, James, I don't think I need to tell listeners uh, uh, the root cause of this problem, which is essentially trying to get rid of all the video stuff, sticking it all on digital, didn't quite work out. Looking back, because you're a former BBC man, and I think your yeah. job title might have, it might have involved the words future and media, is that right? Uh, so you were- it did, yeah. So I, I was a senior manager in, uh, in, in FM&T, as it was, future media and technology was in, in, in Huggers, 2007. Huggers time? Oh, well, I actually joined um, uh, at the same time as, as uh, Huggers, indeed, on, Eric the, on the same press release oh. um, uh, as Eric. So uh, I, I was the bottom paragraph, and Eric was the top <laughs> six, I think. Um, but I think Mike Thompson's actually right. He was talking about... Um, he, he was talking about iPlayer also being a complete disaster. Um, when I joined, actually, iPlayer and DMI were the two projects that nobody wanted to work on. That everybody was huddled in corners, going, "This is absolute disaster." Eric was very, very comfortable in that space, uh, in the iPlayer space, because it was something that he knew, he understood. He'd moved from Microsoft, he'd moved from Windows Media, where he was actually working, and he brought um, Anthony Rose in, and the rest, as they say, is uh, is is a history. But in terms of DMI, I don't think that anybody fully understood what DMI was there. There to end up doing. The only thing that I understood when I was there for a couple of years was everybody knew that it was going to fail. And also, it, it actually impacted on so many. It's, it's, it's a bit disingenuous calling it an IT thing because it actually impacted on virtually everything in the corporation um, to a point where everything that you were trying to end up doing, whether that was making online radio sound better or changing the way you did podcasts, or however it is, would always be stopped by the, well, DMI is going to sort that out. DMI was going to sort everything out. And I think um, the, the fact that nobody really understood what DMI was is probably, you know, the warning, the warning signs that ought to have been uh, seen a little bit earlier. For us, the iPlayer has been rather good, but DMI not. What, what, what have you made of it as you've seen this unfold? Uh, any, any sympathy at all for the BBC? Well, I, I was actually working at Blue Peter when I first heard the letters DMI, and that was going to be one of the first shows that was going integrate, to integrate the system. Um, they didn't have one they made earlier. <laughs> it would, it would yeah. be nice if they did. And, but um, I think that there's a, there's a few issues around this. That the first is, 
a technology just moves so quickly and the BBC is so big that you kind of think that the two things are, are running a different race and it's tricky to, to kind of have them both running in parallel as a result. And I think that the, the problem is, is we, we're talking a lot about this. We're talking a lot about the failure and the cost of the licence fee payer and all of those things are incredibly important. But the, the situation doesn't change. The BBC does need to modernise. The BBC does need to accept the fact that people aren't using tapes anymore and digital ha- has to happen. The issue is, is that well, there's lots of independent production companies like ourselves who aren't going to be working through this DMI process. So the story about how we connect in, in that way was, was never really made clear. We're, we've all got producers and directors and editors who are all using their own systems, their own laptops, their own editing suites to make their own things. And you kind of wonder... Maybe this money would have been better spent training up a whole generation of of new producers to be all self-editing on their own laptops um, using software that you can get off the shelf. And let's not forget that actually the BBC wasn't even running this at the beginning. It was actually Siemens uh, doing this for them. So, you know, what what a technology company like Siemens is doing, talking essentially about broadcast infrastructure, heaven alone knows. There there is a worry around that. There's a a worry that there's a big technology company that, that sold a massive product that nobody really understood but it's like you need to do this because it's the future and it's really important and then it but it's it's technology so you may not get it but it will become clear in the future and it kind of went on and on and on and rumbled rumbled down the road to me it kind of echoes what happened in america with the with the healthcare.gov and the system that they had where you've got a massive institution trying to be technologically apt and, and nimble and and it kind of doesn't surprise anybody when it doesn't quite work the way it should Paul, what do you think? This is a point John Whittingdale made a little while ago. He questioned whether the BBC should be doing these hugely expensive technology projects. You know, should they just stick with making the public service programmes and, you know, as Faraz says, you know, buy this sort of thing off the, off the shelf? Or is it their duty to come up with things like the iPlayer and then sort of spread the love and share them with commercial uh, broadcasters one day, possibly? Well, lots of questions in there. I mean, look, first of all, in terms of the iPlayer, the iPlayer is important because the BBC, if it's going to continue to have a license fee, must have a universality of service, and therefore it's got to deliver its programmes by whatever means people want to access their programmes. So in that sense, the BBC does need to get involved in technology because it can't just make good programmes. It's got to also make sure that those good programmes are actually um, listened to, viewed by license fee payers. In terms of managing technology projects, I was at a BBC uh, seminar earlier this week, um, uh, PQQ, a pre-qualifying questionnaire process, which precedes then an invitation to tender. Um, and I think what um, I would read from this is that the BBC has got much better at managing third-party suppliers. The BBC can't possibly hope to do all of its technology projects in-house. It needs to talk to people outside, and uh, those outside contractors should hopefully bring expertise and uh, possibly value for money too to the BBC, and that's the right thing to do given it's public money. What matters, though, is that when you're commissioning somebody, you make sure you've got a very deep dialogue with them, you understand exactly what that company does, you understand what the purpose of the project is, and you manage it through completely. I think sometimes the BBC in the past has not been that good at the detail and the operations and that's really why partially this fell through I think they've got a lot better they need to ensure that going forward there are no further banana skins because obviously it will impact on the future license fee and I think you know, preparing for that future settlement uh, which is not so far away now it's critical the BBC gets it right in future OK Paul, thanks very much um, next week we've got a DMI special uh, no I'm, I'm kidding you <laughs> Paul, I think you've got to leave us now but thank you very much for joining us back to that sauna-like office Bin the crystal ball, tear up the tarot cards. If you want to know what the future really looks like, there's only one thing for it, the Guardian Changing Media Summit. Mixed with hundreds of top media professionals, tap into the latest trends and thinking and hear from top companies including Airbnb, LinkedIn, BuzzFeed 
and B Sky B. Focus on the future at the Guardian Changing Media Summit on the 18th and 19th of March in London. To find out more, go to theguardian.com slash changingmediasummit. Faraz and James are still with me, and it's time to go through some of the other media stories of the week, uh, and in particular talk Adam Bolton. Uh, he's the Sky News political editor, of course, who's um, standing down later this year after 25 years in the job. Uh, same number of years uh, James has been going professionally, and also uh, since Sky News uh, launched, of course. He's going to host a new evening show, uh, and he's also going to be the uh, Sky News editor at large. But before he does all of that, I went to see him last week in uh, Millbank at the Sky Studios, uh, where he got a few things off his chest. For me... To be honest, covering this present generation of politicians in the way that we're covering them now is not as fun as it was in, say, the Blair or or the Thatcher era because I do feel that there is more news management and less access to politicians and primary sources than there used to be. Obviously, we do our best to get around that, but I sometimes find that frustrating. I mean, I remember being uh, in a hotel lobby with David Cameron and um, he said, oh, you know, this is the first serious trade mission by a British Prime Minister ever to India. Well, I'm sure he saw things like that. The problem was I'd actually been on previous trade missions and stood in the same hotel with Gordon Brown, <laughs> Tony Blair, Margaret Thatcher. So I think there's a certain sense that if you look at the kind of the rituals of politics, each leadership that comes in, whether in opposition or government, tends to to a certain extent, reinvent the wheel, and there's a number of times that you can go round uh, that sequence without wishing to do something new. Well, let's, let's talk about that now. But wh- why has that happened? What, what, what do you perceive in the, the changing... This is a changing relationship between the politicians on one hand and the, and the people who are trying to report it on the other. Yeah, I think if I started being a, a political journalist with Margaret Thatcher and Bernard Ingham, and there, to a certain extent, there still was a sense on their side that they had to be accountable and to try and be accountable in as even-handed a way as possible, and a sense on the political journalist side that the primary issues to report were to do with what the government was doing, what government policy was, uh, what was happening. And, and, you know, there's no doubt about it that Thatcher, for example, was a very dramatic person of very determined views, but she was also someone who, if you asked her a question, she would tell you exactly what she thought, even if it didn't suit. I remember once uh, asking her about the ANC, uh, to which she replied, oh, they're terrorists, no better than the IRA, and uh, Bernard Ingham sort of wincing in the background. You wouldn't get that today with the cautious, pre-prepared approach to politics. And I have to say, with this particular Prime Minister, you know, we don't even get monthly news conferences. He prefers to do interviews away from specialists or senior interviewers or correspondents to do them on, you know, breakfast sofas or to do them out, out, out in the field. And so we have to fight harder for our access now. And again, I think doing that from a studio with what we hope will be a, you know, a major programme will be probably a better way of doing that. How do you view your, your rivals in there? How do you sort of... Uh... Right now, looking ahead to working in the evenings... If we're talking about a news and interview programme, the obvious competitors would probably be Channel 4 News on the one hand and Newsnight on the other. Now, you know, while I you know, admire many of the people who work on those programmes, I would say that they are somewhat pursuing their own tales at the moment and that there may be a little bit of room for 
a straight news programme in the middle of the evening. What, what do you mean by it? Well, I know what you mean, but what do you mean? <laughs> no, well, you know what I pursuing mean. Pursuing their own tales. You mean what? To, to me, well, I think there is. A, I think there is a is, is a sort of um, left to centre and, and and slightly metropolitan, which doesn't help tell the whole story of the news. You know, there is a, a tendency, and one's noticed a lot of interchange between the, the personnel on those two programmes that they seem to be having a, their own little debate in the corner, and I'm not sure it's really. Uh, in the mainstream of where the news is. Newsnight has its own troubles, of course, and it's kind of reinventing yeah. itself. But you kind of feel like it feels a bit tough on four, you know, the stuff they've got at Plebgate and the serious stuff that Well, I love, jo- got, you know, like, you know I, I love jo- John Snow, and, you know, he's, he's been a mentor of mine, but, you know, you do sometimes wonder how many presenters they can cram into their studio uh, of late. <laughs> It'll only be you in your, in your program. Well, it won't be me, and, 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 you know, we won't have five or whatever. I saw John actually at a summit and um, I said he was reporting on his own. I said, it's nice to see you without the Muppets. <laughs> well, that's a bit tough as well, doesn't it? I will cheat Not that I have to achieve BBC stuff, well, but not, at the same time. It's not that the individuals are the Muppets, it's just that idea of the big figures surrounded by a whole load of other figures. Right. But kind of uh, all, all fighting over the auto queue. You know that <laughs> classic image of the Muppets of the. the a crowded set. Well, no, okay. the, one, the one bloke in the middle and then all these sort of. Creatures around them. Right, I see. Yeah. Oh, oh, yeah, you mean a special guest and then they all... Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I know. <laughs> I think I know what you mean, Adam. <laughs> OK, well, you think they're distracting you think they should leave? Because it, it wasn't long ago, John I'm... was hosting the thing on his own. Yeah, exactly. Was... I think it's John's show. Yeah, he's heavyweight enough to do it by yeah. himself, you mean? <laughs> Certainly. Channel 4 News, which is uh, John Snow's show, according to uh, Adam Bolton. Uh, Faraz, what did you make of that? First up is... Uh, it, it sounds like he's, he's taken enough of the Westminster beat and he's going uh, to be glad to get back to the studio and stay there. <laughs> I, I haven't done a huge amount of work in, in journalism and in news. The shows that we make are, are factory shows and, and entertainment shows. But one thing I would say is that I was always taught that if you do work in news, you should never become the story. And it does feel Sky have got a bit of a habit of having these huge personalities that are almost bigger than the news channel itself. Um, and they kind of feel like everybody else should follow suit. Channel 4 do a good job of having a good brand with their news channel. Um, and John is part of that. But it kind of feels like people like Kay Burley and Adam Bolton own... Sky News is a 24-hour network, and, and I'm, I'm not sure how comfortable I am with that. James, what, what, what your thoughts on, on Sky News? I think uh, Adam sounded incredibly relaxed in that interview, and it's almost as if, you know, the, the, this is the end of part of my life, and I'm, and I'm now going to focus on something else. I think he's probably right that actually it is less fun uh, now, you know, that you, you don't have the Tony Blair versus Gordon Brown uh, arguments or, or the Gordon Brown being Gordon Brown uh, fun and entertainment. You know, you don't have any of that going on now. You, you, uh, you, you know, and I think that the media were desperate, weren't they, at the beginning of this coalition to be able to uh, mark uh, both uh, Cameron um, and, and uh, Clegg as being fighting and, and everything else. And that just simply hasn't happened. And I can well see where, uh, why he's suddenly feeling that it's, it's less fun than it once was. And there's a new face at Sky News. Uh, it was announced this week. Uh, it's Ian King, who's currently uh, business and city editor at The Times. He's going to take over Jeff Randall's weeknight uh, business show. We don't know yet who's going to replace Adam Bolton in the political editor's job. Sky News is in, it's, it's sort of reinventing itself now. And it, it did it sort of eight, ten years ago, was it, I think, when it had moved to new studios and had a new lineup. I mean, Sky News genuinely reinvented television news in this country. I think that they were the first 24-hour news network and, and have changed the landscape of how British people consume TV news. And, and if they can continue in that innovation space, then that's a good thing. But I do think that they need to be a little bit careful to make sure that they are not the story themselves and that the channel is... is preceded by content first and great journalism. Okay, well, it's time now for the Media Monkey Quiz, which I know you 
both are particularly excited about it being the first time on the show. Uh, prizes galore. Um, uh, question number one. Uh, who offered viewers uh, five pounds, Prince's time of five pounds, uh, this week if they carried on watching his TV programme? Adrian Charles? Adrian Charles, yes, that's right, with one football. point. With the football? It, very it, good. Was, it was a, a very, very boring, I forget, was it FA Cup replay? I think it was an FA Cup draw, yeah. Fulham, Sheffield United. That sounds bad. And uh, I think it was, I, I heard bits of it on Five Live, and apparently it was. How much did he lose? Uh, well, people started tweeting him saying, I'm watching, I claim my five pounds, so we wait and see uh, how many people complain to Ofcom. Um, whether <laughs> whether he ends up in the bankruptcy courts, but seeing it was his ITV4, I'm guessing. Uh, with all due respect to ITV's multi-channel strategy, he, he's Possibly probably not that many. Thirty pound out of pocket. Mm. Yep. Right. Uh, question number two: uh, Who sloped off injured in the final of Channel 4's The Jump? Now this in every, no way every, reflects everyone that appeared on it. Steve Redgrave. Um, uh, Steve Redgrave. I give you that. Yep. It might be easy to ask who didn't get injured uh, in in an episode of Channel Four's The Jump. Jamie Coulter won. Good knowledge. Did, does that mean did he win because he didn't get injured? Is that's that a, was that the competition? That's a bonus <laughs> point. That'll do. Yeah. I'm not sure if uh, Channel Four's ratings uh, for The Jump. Yeah, they start off about two and a half million, ended up about one and a half. I'm not sure. With the kind of program, is it fair? You've got like a. You've got a credibility deficit when you commission that sort of program. Or is this entirely unfair? And you've got a, a positive, which is how many people might watch it and I'm not sure in this case whether the audience positive outweighed the credibility negative or am I being entirely unfair my understanding of, of why they commissioned it was was because they want to kind of start continue to bolster the success they had off the Paralympics I think it would be nicer if they they further attached it to to that legacy I don't I'm I mean obviously one of the presenters was was one of the presenters that, that came off the back of the Paralympics but uh, it would have been nicer to see a, a closer connection and and more more PR and press around the fact that I, I understand that they have won the tender for the Winter Olympics in, in Sochi for for the Paralympics, and you didn't really feel like those two things were connected. I don't think, which is a bit of a shame. Okay, question number three, and we talked about Muppets earlier this week, but these were nothing to do with Channel Four. Which British actor starred with the Muppets this week? I have the faintest idea. Come, the Muppets come, still going. Cumberbatch. Was it, yeah. was it Benedict Cumberbatch? <laughs> yeah, really? it was. It wow. was hilarious. Benedict Cumberbatch. And it, you know, you love Sesame Street because it's it's for that for that very reason that they can speak to kids and speak to adults at the yes. same time. It's a great sketch if you've not seen it. I thoroughly recommend it. Yes, in fact, yeah, James, your your question might be personal. Is the Muppets still going? It was, in fact, was was Sesame Street. But are they kind of Muppets? Is that you know? Is that, yeah, am oh, I getting well. some kind of copyright trademark issue here? <laughs> we'll get a legal expert right next in. week to tell us this. Yeah, for, <laughs> for the postcard. <laughs> assuming we haven't lost every penny, uh, <laughs> I'm sure we haven't. Yes, um, I forget what he did. I don't know if no. Don't he even... counted. He counted some apples and then he counted some oranges, Good and stuff. then the count helped him. Right. Well, <laughs> it's worth see- honestly it's worth seeing. I know I know I haven't sold it very well, but One it is worth seeing. Apple. Yeah. <laughs> well, on that uh, on that uh, highbrow note, uh, well, it is you know, it's important children's TV public service in America going strong, millions of viewers. Uh, Offrise by the way, I think you won that 3-0. Yeah. Hooray. So, do I get 15 pounds from Adrian Charles? Uh, yeah, you might do. Yes, I think. Hairstay there were well. they were by the way all questions about television. <laughs> yes. Uh that yeah, they were. All right, question yes. number, uh, oh, can I can I come up with a ready? <laughs> No, no time, says producer Matt. Next time, next time, James. Next time. James is looking at me and saying as if there's going to be a next time. Right. <laughs> My thanks to Faraz and James. Next up, Rebecca Nicholson. Right, it's now time to go to Rebecca Nicholson's TV lair. Rebecca, how are you? I'm very well. How are you? I'm all right. Uh, your doorbell's broken. Oh, I know. You've been waiting outside for quite a long <laughs> time, <minutes>. haven't you? <laughs> Anyway, if I'd had my iPhone and I downloaded something, I could have watched a BBC4 documentary you could have. about Supertramp. <laughs> That's enough prog rock for this podcast or any podcast. Uh, we're going to start this week on a, on a, on a sombre note, uh, Rebecca, and, and a grim watch. Yes, I know we normally talk about TV in quite a light-hearted way, but I saw um, Dispatches this week on Channel 4, and the show was called Hunted, and it was a documentary about gay people in Russia. And obviously the spotlight is on that because of the Sochi Winter Olympics 
And it was genuinely one of the most harrowing documentaries I've ever seen. It was sickening. It was physically sickening to watch. Um, they, the journalists managed to infiltrate a gang who go on what they call safari. And basically they entrap gay men. There's a real conflation of homosexuality and paedophilia, which the Russian government doesn't appear to be doing anything to stop. And they entrap these these gay men and then film them and humiliate them, and it's very violent, and it's just... It was a really shocking documentary. It's been a really long time since I've seen a documentary that has that kind of physical effect of kind of disgust and horror. And Liz McKean, who presented it, did a, a sort of outstanding job, really, of being balanced in, in the face of something just so utterly awful. So if you haven't seen it, it's a very, very difficult watch, but I would recommend having a look. And this is Liz McKean, of course, who was uh, the Newsnight reporter who of came course, up with yeah. the, uh, the Savile story, which yes. never aired on Newsnight, and yeah. then everything unraveled from there. Exactly, exactly. But she, she doesn't, it's just a, an excellent job, I thought, here. You can imagine this will be or, or should be the start of, of more of this sort of thing as the spotlight turns on Russia, you know, with yeah. the Winter Olympics, what, this Friday? But or, the really chilling note that it ended on was that, obviously, once international attention isn't on Russia anymore, when the Olympics are over, things are likely to get a lot worse. So definitely watch it if you can. Okay. Well, uh, another difficult watch, but this was of the uh, the strictly fictional variety, was uh, everyone's favourite uh, Scandinavian Saturday night subtitle thriller on BBC Four, which which could be a lot of things. So that's <laughs> it right. could so be it's a still, lot of still quite an accolade. Yeah. Uh, it's uh, the bridge. It's the bridge. There will be spoilers here because I think we'll discuss the plot. You've had enough time. You've not seen it already. You only got yourself to blame. I'm so upset by the ending. I'm so devastated. Poor saga. Poor saga. Um, I interviewed Sophia Helen. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, just hanging out. I did as well. Five minutes on the phone. You did it on person. In person. In In Sweden. In Sweden. It's very, very Scandinois. Um, But I just really wanted to know, because Martin calls her Sega. And then there's some, you know, she's Saga or she's Sega. But she is Saga. Sega is a Danish interpretation of Saga. So... I see. Just in case anyone was wondering, which I'm sure no one was. So there's a little saga. nuances right there that we miss. Yeah. If you listen, he calls her Sega. But she did this. I was very excited. But I, fe- I think I feel like she was maybe slightly overwhelmed because I had just seen the last two episodes and all I wanted to do was talk about how upset I was. She sort of got Give really her a hug. kind of. Yeah, she was like, oh, it's, it's okay. She was one step away from telling me that it wasn't real. Um, it was bleak. I it had was the. Bleak. I was depressed for the entire Sunday, which got me into terrible trouble. But, <laughs> You know, and, and the sense that I know, it's, as she said, she reassured you, it's only, you know, it's only make-believe. It's eh? only make-believe. But there's a sense that this is now going to be, uh, well, we won't get any closure on this until the start of the third series. And that, you know, that Which they have, they're, they're all apparently in... filming in September, so we're going to have to wait quite a long time. This one's set in Disneyland, apparently, so you can expect <laughs> to change the tone. Euro Disney. Well, yeah, the poison apple was quite uh, oh. Disney in a way, wasn't it? And the character, uh, any character Penilla. who knows they're going to die, Penilla, just Penilla, waiting to... That was, that to, was oh. the worst. Actually, Penilla, and then the very last scene with um, him being driven away and she just look, and she's all alone. She's all alone again. She's not got her boyfriend. She's not got Martin, who is the one person who kind of makes her feel like she belongs. Oh, the makes whole her whole again. I was very, yeah, he makes her in the words of Atomic Kitten. <laughs> That's right. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, I found it so upsetting. I was so sad. It was a grim... I can't think of a grimmer TV uh, climax to a TV drama. I mean, The Killing I mean, Part 3 was pretty... pretty uh, but, you know, I'd, had a, I'd taken enough by then. This yeah, was but then she flew off in the plane and it was a bit... It was just ever so slightly comical. There was no comedy. But I, again, The Bridge is my favourite of all of the Scandies. And I think 
it proved itself. It seemed to be very popular as well. It seemed like... Oh, yeah. Yeah. Was it more popular than Borgen? I believe it was much more popular than Borgen. Yeah. And a, a Rizlathin line of people ahead of The Killing, I think, yeah. as well. I'm not surprised. I think it's the best one. Yeah. And uh, who was it? The guy at the end, the, the mystery person, man or woman. Was it someone we already met? You know, was it the police chief? Well, this is the question. So, Was it the Edgar Wright lookalike cop? <laughs> for series three, who was the, the man who killed Gertrude? And did Martin really do it? Because if he's coming back, then we need to know how. Will he be back in a Jens way? Jens? Jens? Uh, it depends if you're from Sweden or Denmark. Oh, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> will he be back and will he be in prison or did he not really do it or what's the... And is the wanking Michael Gove lookalike really dead? <laughs> he is. I'm is sure he? that he is dead. Not Sherlock-esque. <laughs> right, OK. Maybe they can get Sherlock in to sort all that out for us. He was a wanking lookalike, not a... <laughs> Perhaps I got my words the wrong way around, but uh, so let's let's go. On. Let's uh, from there. Let's let's end on a let's end on a more upbeat note. Yes. Well, the other thing that I saw for the first time this week is the restaurant man, which is Russell Norman, the man behind Polpo and Polpetto, and a couple of other really very successful London restaurants. Basically, what the take BBC have it. done is take Ramsay's Kitchen nightmares and BBC to it. Mm. So he so last night they had a couple who wanted to open a, a gamey pub um, and a pub that serves game rather than... A gamey pub. A gamey pub. Right. <laughs> and went through the kind of process of them starting this restaurant. And obviously, oh, the guy was... He just wouldn't listen. You think, listen to Russell Norman. He knows what he's doing. Perhaps you hadn't heard of him like I have. <laughs> well, I hadn't to Google. Right. He was very successful and I was thinking, what has he done? But, I mean, he knows this stuff. But he's slightly more patient than Gordon. It's basically Gordon Ramsay without the shouting or the really giddy editing, American-style editing. But more Apprentice-style music, I'm guessing, or do they resist? No, they didn't even really do that. I mean, it's very BBC too. Quite entertaining, though. I mean, just that sense that they wouldn't listen to him. He's saying you can't charge 25 quid for a steak in Gloucester. And he's going, no, I think we can. Turns out you can't. Turns out, spoiler alert, Is that with Is that with chips and mushrooms or is that just the steak? I don't know. You know right. what? They didn't make that clear. Right. Is that with sides? Is it with the sauce? If it's with sides, I'll, I'll, I can do that for a yeah. Valentine's Day sauce. alone. That's at least an extra three quid. Diane Sauce. I've heard of her. <laughs> I'd listen to her. Is it like the restaurant? you remember the restaurant? That was awful. That it's, a bit, show. it's a bit like that, but mm. a bit better. Yeah, that was awful, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Got what it deserved. <laughs> Uh, on that uh, g- gastronomic note, Rebecca Nicholson, thank you very much. Thank you. And that's it for this week. My thanks to all our guests, Faraz Osman, James Gridland, Paul Robinson, Adam Bolton and Rebecca Nicholson. Catch all the latest media news at theguardian.com slash media. My name's John Plunkett and the producer is the estimable Matt Hill. Thanks for listening. For more great downloads, go to theguardian.com slash audio. Support for this Guardian podcast comes from Squarespace, providing creative tools that help you bring your ideas to life. Squarespace offers free domain names, customizable designs, drag and drop tools, and 24-7 support. Squarespace also offers seamless e-commerce solutions for you or your small business. Every design automatically includes a unique mobile experience that matches the overall style of your website, so your content will look brilliant on any device. Start your free trial today. No credit card required. As a Guardian podcast listener, you'll get 10% off your new account by using the offer code GUARDIAN.